One morning in the fall of 1936, 10-year-old Frederick Beekner and his younger brother were playing in their room. Their father opened the door and he checked on them. And then he went down to the family garage, turned on the engine of the car, and waited for the exhaust to kill him. Beekner and his brother heard a commotion, and they looked out the window, and they saw their father lying in the driveway. Their mother and grandmother were in their nightgowns, and they had dragged their father out of the garage and were pumping his legs up and down in a doomed attempt to revive him. There would be no funeral. There would be no discussion of what had happened. Their mother just moved the Beekner boys to Bermuda. The rules of their family were don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. And they became masters of covering themselves over. Many decades later, despite the horrific and formative event that shaped his childhood and the rules of his family not to talk, not to trust, not to feel. Frederick Beekner emerged as one of the most significant writers and preachers and theologians of his time. He somehow discovered that you cannot steel yourself against the pain. Just shut down the feelings. You can't do it. When you do that, you simultaneously close your, clothe yourselves off from being transformed by the power and the beauty and the grace of life itself. I know Kate talked about Frederick Beekner in her sermon last week. I suspect Frederick Beekner is being mentioned in many sermons in these days. Beekner had a profound influence on me and my ministry, which seems to call forth a few more thoughts about him and from him. All of his works, his poetry, his prose, his books, his sermons, inspired all the preachers and theologians that I know. And it inspired all of us, he inspired all of us to be more in touch with our faith and our feelings. A whole section of my study on the third floor here is devoted to Beekner and his writings. Frederick Beekner, as Kate mentioned last week, died this month at the age of 96. He was an ordained Presbyterian minister, and he served for nine years at Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire, teaching religion and literature. And it's where our own Larry Palmer encountered Frederick Beekner when Larry was a student at that school. This is what Beekner says, a kind of summary of his life. And it comes from a book written in 1983. If I were called upon to state in a few words the essence of everything I was trying to say as both a novelist and as a preacher, it would be something like this. Listen to your life. See it for the fathomless mystery that it is. In the boredom and the pain of it, no less than the excitement and the gladness, touch, taste, Smell your way to the holy and hidden heart of it because in the last analysis, all moments are key moments and life itself is grace. Grace. 
Life's temptation, of course, is to move from place to place pretty much on cruise control, which means mostly focusing on our recent failures or perhaps focusing on our worries for what's yet to happen. We're not automatically good at listening to the specific moments of our life, paying attention to the sacred in our midst. We have to work at that. We have to practice that. It's so easy for us to go through all of our days, wake up, make some coffee, figure out what we have to do, and then go do it. And if we're not careful, we, we move mindlessly through. And before you know it, where has it all gone? Are we seeing and sensing the sacred, the beautiful, the grace? Are we living with grace, amazing grace, as the hymn says? Frederick Buechner, despite the sadness and losses that came his way, and there were many, kept urging us in the habit of fully inhabiting our experience. Be present with your life. Pay attention, he said, when unexpected tears come to your eyes and what might trigger them. Always look for the mightiness, the sacred. He was talking about those sudden upwellings of emotion we get from maybe nature or art or when we see a whale breaching or when we are emotionally ambushed by a lion in a movie or in a poem. We're led toward truth and beauty, he says, by the lump in our throat. Pay attention to your life. The other big subject for Beekner was grace, amazing grace, his writings, his stories, his honesty, his doubts, all pointed toward grace, something that seems to be increasingly missing in our world. Where's the grace in the world? Here's the way Frederick Beekner summarizes grace. A good sleep is grace. And so are good dreams. Most tears are grace. The smell of rain is grace. Somebody loving you is grace. Loving somebody is grace. Have you ever tried to love somebody? Somebody loving you is grace. We can't force it. A crucial eccentricity, he says, of the Christian faith is the assertion that people are saved by grace. There's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you have to do. Here's the grace of God means something like, here's your life. You might have never been, but you are, because the party wouldn't be complete without you. And here's the world. Beautiful and terrible things were happening. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Nothing can ever separate us. It's not... It's for you that I created the universe. I love you. There's only one catch, Beekner says. Like any other gift, the gift of grace can be yours only if you open, reach out, and take it. And maybe being able to reach out and take it is also a gift. Grace. Grace and gracious living in response to a gracious and amazing God is what our scripture passages are about today. Those words printed in our bulletin from Hebrews, which Kelly just read, remind us to live a certain way. 
pay attention to your life and live a certain way, sharing love, sharing hospitality, concerned about the less fortunate. Those words remind us like Beekner to pay attention. Pay attention to what we're doing, not just go through the motions on autopilot. And then we have another story. It's from Luke's gospel and it's from chapter 14 and it's about Jesus eating with Pharisees. Listen or read along. On one occasion when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. And just then in front of him, there was a man who had edema. And Jesus asked the lawyers and Pharisees, is it lawful to cure people on the Sabbath or not? But they were silent. So Jesus took him and healed him and sent him away. And then he said to them, if one of you has a child or an ox that has fallen into a well, will you not immediately pull it out on a Sabbath day? And they could not reply to this. When he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. When you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place, and then in disgrace you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes he may say to you, friend, move up higher, and then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He also said to the one who had invited them, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return, and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is the word of the Lord. So when we get to Luke 14 and we read that first sentence, Jesus in a house with Pharisees and eating a meal and it is on the Sabbath, it is a stage set for confrontation. Pharisees, we've learned, love to challenge Jesus. And this is the third time in Luke that Jesus is dining with Pharisees. Who you eat with says a lot about who you are and what your purposes are. And add a Sabbath day healing to this scene and you have more tension. This is the fourth time in Luke already that this issue has come up. What is lawful on the Sabbath? So right on cue... The Pharisees began observing Jesus with a hostile intent. I had a professor in grad school uh, say one time that there are two ways to approach life. One is with a suspicious stare, and the other is with a loving glance. A suspicious stare or a loving glance. Pretty good reminder about how we might live Do we live more with a suspicious stare or a loving glance? A good challenge for us all the time. The language of this particular text in Luke 14 shows that the Pharisees are in an adversarial stance. 
Once again, they're hoping to trap Jesus. They want to indict him as going against God on certain issues, in particular Sabbath rules. And there's a man present with edema. Edema is a disorder where excessive swelling comes from fluid retention. You swell up because of fluid in your body that doesn't dissipate, creates major problems. And although this man doesn't say one thing in this story, he doesn't even ask Jesus for help, we sense that Jesus will again intervene and bring health even on the Sabbath and even in front of suspicious Pharisees. Is it right to heal on the Sabbath or not? Jesus asked. Who among you with a son or a cow that falls into the pit will not immediately lift him up on the Sabbath? That's Jesus' question to the Pharisees. They don't say anything. They're unable to offer a response. So their silence leaves Jesus' view of appropriate conduct on the Sabbath uncontestable. But the man with edema is not the only man in this story and at this dinner who needs healing from Jesus, the healer of bodies and souls. The man with edema is not the only one on the scene who needs some transformation. The abiding grace of God intends to fill all of us with more grace, more amazing grace. And we all have a long way to go to be filled with more grace. Jesus continues with this parable about meals and where to sit and what's important when you dine. When you're invited, don't take the prime seat. For all who lift themselves up will be brought low and those who lower themselves will be lifted high. If we look closely at the passage, Jesus is very direct. And if you like English and grammar, he employs here the imperative mood. Don't grab the seat reserved for the most prestigious guest, almost as if it has an exclamation point. Don't do it. Go and recline in the last place. Also, the imperative mood. This is another of the many reminders all through the scriptures, God's vertical reversal. God's vertical reversal. This is God's way. The low are brought high, the high low. We're pretty inherently attuned to climbing for ourselves, to securing the best for ourselves and the scriptures remind us God cares about the lowly, the forgotten, and invites us to be more tuned to the lowly. We're generally turned inward and selfish, desiring more and better for ourselves, and God keeps wanting us to turn outward, away from self, to selflessness. We are generally calculating where's the best seat, anticipating planning for what might be most preferred, most suitable to our needs, and God keeps turning things upside down, reversing status and wealth and power. Here's the truth. Christian faith is mostly not about receiving a blessing from God. Christian faith is mostly about being an agent for God's blessings on those who have less, who have been forgotten, and who need to be 
lifted. Christian faith is not mostly about finding our way to heaven. It is about bringing heaven to others by lifting others up and spreading grace, amazing grace, having grace abound, peace abound in the world, and then, then we'll find blessing. This is all confirmed in the last little section of this passage. Jesus says, when you have a banquet, invite those who are poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind, because they don't have a means to pay you back, for your repayment will come at the resurrection of the just. We're so good at calculating and navigating for the best for ourselves. And Jesus is urging once again this reversal. Be grace-filled and be more thoughtful, especially toward those who have less. This is the way to life. This is the way to the kingdom of God. We're so good at comparing. Who has more? Who has better? How can I get that? Jesus points to a new measurement, a reversal. And to be grace-filled and generous and not greedy and selfish. Can grace abound with us? Can grace abound with us? The man with edema is not the only person in this story who needs healing. The Pharisees, so fixated on their rules, especially Sabbath rules, are taught about grace and healing. And the message of the meal, we're all turned inward. And we're meant to be turned outward toward grace and healing, away from self to others, away from our own plans to the plans for others to be lifted. For all who lift themselves will be brought low, and those who lower themselves will be lifted up. Can grace abound with our lives? How much is it needed? How many action, interactions did you have this week where grace was so lacking how can we be people abounding in grace? This is what Jesus is constantly teaching, story after story, abounding, amazing grace. One of Frederick Buechner's often cited observations is that you find your vocation. We each find our vocation, our calling in the world. It is at that spot where our deep gladness meets the world's deepest needs. The spot of our vocation is where our deep gladness meets the world's deepest needs. Clearly, according to Jesus, the deep gladness, our deep gladness, comes when we find ways to help and care and serve others, when we think less about our futures, ourselves, our plans, our positions, our deep gladness emerges when we find ways to bring help and wholeness and compassion and care to every moment in which we find ourselves. And there's so many places, near and far, longing for help and healing, for grace to abound, friends. May God's Spirit so cover all of our lives this day and transform us to be instruments of grace, help, healing, today, tomorrow, forever, in small ways and big ways, especially wherever we can extend ourselves toward the world's deepest needs. May it be so. Amen.
Let us pray. Oh, Lord, uh, to turn from you is to fall. To turn to you is to rise, to open our hearts to your grace and to live by grace. Well, that is to have grace abounding. And we seek that way, following Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.